today's message, we're talking about extraordinary Jesus, and we are talking about de-nicing Jesus. You ever been on a plane in the wintertime and they have to de-ice the plane because otherwise things don't go well? Well, it's the closest I can come. It's not really a word, but we're going to de-nice Jesus because if we don't, I think spiritually things don't go well. He's not as good as they can. And uh, I don't know that I have an agenda for this mini-series other than we're going to talk about things that, we're going to hit verses that bother me that I don't know what to do with. I can't sort them out. And so I don't preach them very often. And so I thought I'm just going to take these messages and dump them in your lap and you can have a problem with them. So I asked for help, a little sermon research. I went on Facebook and I said, hey, I'm doing a sermon on Jesus. What adjectives come to your mind? I had 446 responses. Thank you to all you who did. And it was all kinds of great things, truth and compassionate and faithful and eternal and servant and friend and determined and gracious and he's enough, he's unfathomable, he's omnipotent, all those things. And I'm not going to go through all that. You can read that when you get distracted from what I say, all right? And uh, to those of you who did, I didn't have the time to respond or to like. So if you did put something on, that's for you. All right, thank you. Um, when I looked at that, I did read all 446 comments. And I did a little unofficial study, a little bit biased because it just asked what comes to your mind. But 97% of the adjectives were of this variety. They were about just the, the power and the awesomeness and the love and the kindness and the faithfulness of Christ. And 3% of them are adjectives that put us in touch with another dimension of who Jesus is. And uh, sort of a cutting edge. 3% of them, which isn't many, said he's disruptive. He's radical. He's angry. He's abrasive. He's stern. He's jealous. He's bold. He's wrathful. He's a victor. He's mighty. He's relentless. And they put us in touch with what I would call the, the ferocious dimension of Jesus and who he is. And in the next few weeks, we're going to look at scriptures uh, that bother me because they show Jesus in a light that he's not nice. And we're going to de-nice him, if you will. And uh, to, to kind of look at that, if you're following along in the app, there are uh, points and sermon references. But the first thought is that he is the Lion of Judah. Say Lion of Judah. Lion of Judah. And a verse that goes with that uh, is from he Revelation chapter 5. Let me set the context of it. John, Jesus' best friend, has a revelation uh, from God about the end of human history and the beginning of eternity, a new heaven and new earth. And he is amidst the, the uh, throngs of heaven and there is a scroll that has been sealed with seven seals, a uh, wax seal with a signet ring on it in old times. And no one has been found worthy in all of heaven to break the seals, to be able to unfurl and read the scroll, to allow or to initiate the, the final season of history and end times, as you will. And John is weeping because he's longing for the fallenness of this planet to finally be done away with, for there finally to be a new heaven and a new earth. And in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, it says, One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. 
So Jesus is the line of Judah. He's, he's a descendant from the family tree of David. Read the, the first chapter of Matthew. And this psalm that Chris Tomlin sings, Is He Worthy? We sing that. Jesus is worthy as the line of Judah to unfold all the rest of history. And we've been looking at that in the, the deeper dive on Wednesday nights. And so when you think of Christ as the Lion of Judah, it brings this sort of a visual image to mind. It's a beautiful picture of, uh, we call lions the king of the beasts. And this definitely is, is how that, that title is earned. Magnificent photograph of a male lion. And we look at that, and when we take it a step further, there is a ferociousness, a ferocity of the king of the beasts, like this next slide. Now, that says I'm the king. That says I have no rivals and I would not want to be on the receiving end of that. I thought about having a third slide because when you Google lions and their prey, it gets really, whoa, and I thought I might distract you from the sermon altogether, so I didn't. But go ahead and Google that later today. <laughs> this is part of the image of Jesus. The ferocious lion of Judah. Most of us have lost touch with that dimension of Christ. So when we do, it's difficult for us to process scriptures like Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 is speaking about those in New Testament times, Jews who turned their back on Christ, who did not listen to the gospel. It certainly applies to our culture now and a godless antichrist mindset that's among us. Hebrews 10, 29. How much severer punishment, don't like that word, do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine. Vengeance. That's a harsh word. That's a payback. That's a you don't want to be on the receiving end of that. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, we rarely think of this perspective. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. When is the last time you thought about what it would be like to fall into the hands of a living God and you felt terrified about the thought of that? It's terrifying. I think we struggle with that. We can't wrap our minds around that or even relate to that emotionally. Because as one theologian said, we have turned the Lion of Judah into a house cat. Closest I can come to a house cat is this. And yes, that's one of the kittens we rescued. We had them for two mornings before we gave them all away. And so I would get up and before I go to work, I put them on my lap. I pet this guy right now is purring up a storm. Isn't he sweet? Jesus done purr. He's not a kitty, nothing sweet. He's not a house cat. He is the lion of Judah and he is ferocious. He's all this and more. So I ask you the next point, what is lost when we lose this sense about God? What sense? Let's go back to Revelation chapter one. Again, Revelation, it's a revelation given by God of Jesus Christ, of end times, how history will draw to a close and go into a new heaven and a new earth. And it is recorded, it is given to the best earthly friend of Jesus. Like this. 
when Jesus was hanging on the cross, being crucified to death, John was there. The only disciples didn't flee completely with Jesus' mother, Mary. They're at the foot of the cross weeping. And Jesus says to John, his earthly best friend, John, behold your mother. Mom, behold your son. In other words, take her into your family like your own. I'm passing my role off to you. This is the same disciple that the Last Supper, and in those days, the table would be yay high, and you would lay, lay down and rest on your elbow, and you'd eat, and they're at the last, so you're all, all around the table, and he is, Jesus is right here. He, this is the same best friend who leans against Jesus' chest and says, so who's going to betray you, Lord? That guy. Best friend. Some 60-ish years later, because Christ was crucified in 33 AD, rose to heaven, and John writes this last book of the Bible in the early 90s while he's in exile on the island of Patmos. And he says in Revelation 1:17, when I saw him, when I saw Jesus, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I'd go all the way down, but I have to still read. <laughs> and he placed his right hand on him. I fell like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. The best friend of Jesus, when he finally sees him after 60 years, when he's gone to heaven, doesn't say, and I ran to Jesus and I high five and said, Lord, it's so good to see you. I gave him a hug. No, I fell at his feet like a dead man. I have lost something of my perception of Jesus compared to his best friend. Isaiah. Go to the Old Testament. That's New Testament. Old Testament. Isaiah, he's like top 10 prophets in my book. I mean, he lived seven centuries before Jesus was born. Isaiah is the one that says, unto us a child is born, right, a son is given. A virgin will conceive, give birth to a child, they'll call him Emmanuel. Isaiah is that guy. Listen to Isaiah's reaction to finding himself in a vision in the throne room of God. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, that's how we know, 700 BC, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim, angelic beings, stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his head, his feet, with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. I'm convinced we don't come close to understanding that little four-letter word, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And I said, whoa, I have got to get a picture of this. Get a selfie. No. Then I said, a prophet used by God, one of the greatest prophets in the whole Bible, woe is me for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There is such a sense of awesome, dreaded otherness about God the Holy One, 
about the I am, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. There is such a dreaded sense of awesomeness about them, about him. And we have lost that. And so when you, when you look at that, what adjectives would fit the person described in Revelation 19? I'll tell you a little about Revelation 19. Uh, you're not in the, the Wednesday night end times class. We're going to have prayer this Wednesday, and then we'll kick back in the next couple weeks of August. But the, the timeline that we've been talking about is, I believe, the next event is the rapture of the church, described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When the dead in Christ rise, we work up to meet in the air, etc. After the rapture of the church, the great tribulation will happen on earth for all those left behind. Seven years, it'll turn into hell on earth. At the end of that seven years, Christ will return. It'll be the second coming of Christ and, the, and will, he'll fight the battle of Armageddon. It'll be the bloodiest, most comprehensive massacre in earthly history. That's the stage of Revelation 19. Verse 11, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. He who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, in righteousness, what is he? he judges and wages war, Jesus. His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. He's using uh, poetic language here. He's not talking about blowtorches out of his face. There's an intensity. He has a name written on him that no one else except himself. And he has clothed the robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword. Again, poetic language to describe the violence, the devastation that's going to happen. That it may, he may strike the nations down. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. When was the last time you even sat and meditated for 10 minutes and got bothered by the thought of the fierce wrath of God? It's all over Old and New Testament. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What words would you use to describe that person? I thought about the next verses. You can go read them. They're really gross. He gives an invitation to the birds of the air to come and basically feast on the bodies of those who die in this carnage. That war wager is Jesus. Somehow I have so niced him up that that image, that role, that perspective, that behavior of Christ doesn't even cross my mind. And so, my suggestion to de-nice him. And I remember as a kid, I grew up in the church I grew up in, we had two pictures, big pictures on the wall of the lobby. One picture was a picture of our pastor. Good guy. Um, I don't want that here, okay? And, and the other picture was that picture of Jesus, you know, like from here up. And he's, he's sitting there like he's posing and he's real real demure and his hair is like long and flowing and he's just a, okay. That picture of Jesus, you know what I'm talking about? Okay. That ain't the whole view of Jesus. And so as we de-nice him at the last point, Jesus wasn't what many would call nice. 
I think he talked to the disciples. He said, was Jesus nice? He could be. I wouldn't say he was nice. He could be nice. And, and so let me give you some context because nice means agreeable, friendly, pleasant, conciliatory. I just want everybody to get along. Everybody's happy. Let's be nice. Nothing wrong with being nice. I like you to be nice to me. But it's not all he was. So here's the stage. Imagine the life of Jesus and every public audience you have is a mixed crowd. People who think you are amazing, that you are the Messiah. People who are trying to figure you out and people who hate your guts and literally want you dead. In fact, his adversaries, the Pharisees, the religious people, eventually they would successfully plot to take his life and they would. Crucifixion. That's the crowd he is constantly talking to in public. You have to always watch your words. How can this be twisted? How can this be used against me? And so there he is. And so in this crowd, Pharisees were religious elite. They, they, they kind of ruled the courts and they called the shots and they were very antagonistic, always trying to trip up Jesus. And the Bible tells us that a man named Simon, a Pharisee, invited him to dinner and Jesus went. While they're at dinner, reclining at the table, this woman comes in and she crawls up to his feet. You picture him laying around the table and she starts, she's weeping and she pours an alabaster vial of perfume on his feet and she's crying on his feet and she's drying his feet with her tears, kissing his feet. Talk about awkward, right? And, and so here we pick up on Jesus where he's not always nice. Verse 40, Jesus answered him and said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. And the disciples who know Jesus go, oh, no, not here. Don't know. No. They see it coming. Jesus confronts him. He says, first of all, let me tell you a story. There's a money lender. He has two debtors. To one, he loaned a little bit of money. To one, he loaned a small fortune. And then he forgave them both. Who do you suppose would be more grateful and more loving to that moneylender? I suppose the one who was forgiven more, he says. He goes, you're right. Now I'm turning it right to you. He says, uh, you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. And that's customary. If you're a host, out of respect for your guests, hospitality, you'll have water there and a towel that can wash their feet. Or if you really want to go overboard, you have a servant wash their feet for them. You know, to get, and he says, you, you gave me no water for my feet. And she has with, wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. Again, customary, kiss on the cheek. All right, glad you're here. Since the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, another gesture of hospitality, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins are forgiven. And by the way, you obviously aren't grateful because you don't think you've been forgiven much. What Jesus did there was what Paul talks about in Ephesians 4, 15, but speaking the truth in love were to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. A mark of spiritual maturity that is rarely seen in our current Christian culture is speaking the truth to one another in love. We either do it in hostility or arrogance or whatever, fighting words, but, but I'm talking in our daily Christian relationships. Do you know when I vent to you and I just, I just vent to you, whatever I'm unhappy about, it's a person, it's, it's my job, it's my spouse, it's family, it's probably the church, it's the pastor. I just vent to you. Glenn, and Glenn just sits there. Oh, wow, oh, man. Yeah, oh, wow, when I'm done, do you know what I walk away thinking? And Glenn agrees with me. 
If there's no loving pushback, I'm not so sure I see it that way. You might be being too harsh. Yeah, but is it really the way it is? If there's not speaking the truth in love, there's not iron sharpening iron, we just assume, and I don't have to change, and I'm right, and you're wrong, and I told them, and they didn't say anything, so they agree with me. Jesus would never let you walk away assuming everything is right and you're fine when there's something in him going, <sighs> and that's really a good judge. Use your own discernment. When you're talking to somebody and you're cringing at the way they're talking about their job, their marriage, whatever, whoever it is in their life, all right, <clears throat> that cringe is probably meant to turn into loving truth. So let's look at what Jesus did. Let's look at some not nice things he said about family. Tell your neighbor and say, he didn't say it, Jesus did. Because I didn't say this. For the next three weeks, I didn't say it, Jesus, don't get mad at me. I'm just telling you what Jesus said, you figure it out. Because we're talking about family and that's like the new gold standard. I mean, that we, our culture worships family. And children are a gift from, the God, from God. The Bible says that and we're to honor our father and mother. But look at what Jesus says. I didn't say it, Jesus did. He says in Luke 14, 25, now large crowds were going along with him and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, they cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, that's not nice. It's recorded in Matthew as well, chapter 10, verse 37. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. He who has lost his life will find it for my sake. Well, that's a little more palatable, but man, Jesus, that's not a nice way to talk about my parents or my kids or my siblings. What would they say about us? Man, compared to how much she loves Jesus, it's like she hates her family. I mean, compared to that. Is there that tension? And, and then, this is even worse. Luke chapter 9, verse 59. And he said to another, follow me. So he's gathering disciples. He sees this guy, follow me. And the guy said, permit me first to go and bury my dad. My dad's dying. He's old. Let me bury him first and I'll be glad to follow you. And Jesus said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. As for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. I read that and I go, that's not nice. It's rude. Unless your standard is, man, compared to, compared to everybody else, it's like you hate them. And the guy just said, let me bury my dad. No. You want to follow me? Follow me. Where's your priorities? And then the next verse. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me, permit me to say goodbye to those at home. Just let me go say goodbye so they don't worry about me. I'd go, sure. Check me in a couple days. <laughs> Guess what? He's not nice. Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. I'm out of here. Stay home. That is not 
nice. I didn't say it. Jesus did. So you figure it out. We have so nice him up. We got Jesus purring like a kitten. We totally forget that he is a ferocious line of Judah. And I don't know what to do with those things. How do you reconcile that perspective? Aren't you glad you came today? <laughs> Next week we're going to tell five jokes Jesus told. <laughs> no. <laughs> I'll have more kayak illustrations. Let's look at the things he said that weren't nice about our potential eternal future. Because certainly all of us, we're in church, we're going to heaven. Hopefully we are. But man, he raised the bar. In uh, Matthew 7, verse 13, enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad, leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. That's not 50% plus one, 50% minus one. That's like few. That's it's a nice way of saying most of you are going to hell. And it was a mixed crowd there. It's a mixed crowd here. Jesus is harsh. Let's look at some not nice things he says about our stuff and our money. And just as a frame of reference, um, you agree with this. He's got the whole world in his hands, right? Got that? We're all good, okay? So he's got the whole world. He doesn't just look at like Dayton compared to Beverly Hills. He looks at Dayton, Ohio compared to the whole world in his hands. So do the study. If you make 20 grand a year, which all of you do, 20 grand a year, full-time job is 10 bucks an hour, okay? 20 grand a year, you're in the top 12% of wage earners in the whole world in his hands. So if you make 20 grand a year, like 20 grand a year, if you make 20 grand a year, 88% of the world says, I'd love to be as rich as you. Just context. So now let's look at what Jesus says. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. He was setting on a journey Again, so not nice. And a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This guy runs up to him, kneels down, proper sense of humility, proper sense of submission. It's a sincere question. The guy's bothered. He wants to go to heaven. Maybe he heard narrow gate. What do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you, why, you, you know the commandments. He lists a few of them. The guy says, I've kept all those since my youth. And, and, and it says in verse 21, looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him. I mean, this sincere guy, what do I do to get in heaven? And he says, 10 commandments, I've done them all. I mean, this guy is legit. Thou shalt, thou shalt not, thou shalt, thou shalt not. He has done the shouts and the shalt not dutifully. More than many of us have. And Jesus, he felt a love for him. And this guy is for real. I love this guy. And then he said, well, one thing you lack. Yes. Go and sell all you possess, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Aren't you glad I never said that to you? Or me? Maybe you did, and I just thought it was too nice to notice. I don't know. 
But these words, at these words, he was saddened. And he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Pause button. Let's just pretend we're at a worldwide teaching by Jesus right now. We're in it. And you know, we don't like to have our toes stepped on, right? So I can say, yeah, that's them, okay? 88% of the world, when they hear how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God, they're going to go, yeah, like you guys, you CLCers. It's going to be hard for you to get into heaven. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know, this is the same Jesus who said, you can't serve God in money. And the more you own, the more it owns you. Be careful. And then he says that about a camel going through the eye of a needle. I remember when it became popular. How many of you ever heard the explanation that what Jesus was referring to then was a, was a saying back then that in the walls of the city, there was a small gate that soldiers couldn't just ride through and plunder. And it was just short enough that a camel rider could barely get underneath it. You had to be real careful. How many of you ever heard that explanation? Okay, I've heard that. I like that. Because there's a loophole. And instead of, the, we pay attention to the loophole instead of the intent. The intent is, I got to tell you, most don't make it. And I think the danger is that when we de-nice, Je when we nice Jesus up, and he's just this big divine pussycat. I'm getting in because I'm nice. He's nice, I'm nice. We're just getting in. He loves everything I do. If I don't, no big. When we make Jesus too nice, we minimize him. We forget that he's also described as someone who will rule with a rod of iron. We forget there is something called the judgment seat of Christ, not the attagirl seat of Christ. Attaboy. We disregard his word. We pick and choose what we'll do and what we'll not do. And we lose diligence regarding obedience. If he's just a little pussycat. If I know that I, what I do in my obedience is going to be met by the roaring lion of Judah, I am way more diligent to make sure that Philippians 2 is true in my life. Let each one work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says, rather than a wink, I'll be fine. And Christian sociologists, Christian sociologists tend to indict us and they say, when we study people who are of the world, people who are not Christians, maybe even hostile to God, we look at their lifestyle, how they spend their time, their money, their priorities, all that. Their lifestyle and the lifestyles of professing Christians inside this room are just about negligibly different. They're the same. We're supposed to be salt and light. We, we serve, we serve a, a God who's the Lion of Judah. And so I, I can't help but wonder, what level of passion does Jesus presume of us? What level of diligence does he assume, does Scripture assume of us? And, and instead, we've recreated him in our image. 
Jared Packer has a book called Knowing God, and he says something that I've read the book 20 years ago. It still hits me. He talks about the threat of modern-day idolatry, and idolatry is really creating our own idol, our own God of worship. You know, in the, in the end, end times class, we talk, you know, that, that they serve the creature rather than the creator. And, and J.I. Packer says, one form of idolatry I would suggest is that when you sit in a group and you talk about, I like to think of Jesus as, I like to think of God as. He says, with all due respect, what difference does it make what you like to think of Jesus as? How you like to think of God? Who is God? Make it your life discovery, your life passion to discover that and not worship some Jesus who's turned into a house cat rather than a lion of Judah, come to know and serve and love Jesus for everything that he is and, and not create him in our own image. And so we're going to do this over the next couple of weeks. And, and I, I so want to now put the nice on it. Last night we have a, a dinner once a month after church on Saturday night and I was sitting at a table with friends and, and all people, oh, that was a great sermon. That really made me think. And the one guy next to me, a friend of mine, said, well, yeah, but you know, he's also the lamb. We can't even wait one hour of the, with the lion to lamb him up. And somebody after service today said, yeah, but it was the lamb that was slain. And so my prayer is that your prayer is troubled. The Holy Spirit is our teacher, Jesus said, and I hope he's the one who convicts us and, and causes us to say, Lord, have I, have I niced you up so much that I'm flippant in my disobedience, that I'm passive in my devotion, that I really have lost my first love? And so we thought a great song to land this with is one that I hope is true in my life or will be true eventually in my life, soul deep, and that is you can have this whole world but give me Jesus. That my longing will be for Jesus, not as I want him to be, not as I like him to be, but as he truly is, yes, the lion and the lamb, an amazing savior, but also a just God. Give me Jesus.
give me Jesus You can't have all this world But give me Jesus Oh, give me Jesus Oh, it satisfies my heart just a couple moments and pray. Hopefully you'll take longer than that later. And I'll join you in having a seat because I don't have, I have far more questions than I have answers to this sermon. It troubles me. It bothers me. I don't know how to preach it. At least not with a conclusion other than, okay, that's a part of Jesus we need to be aware of mindful of to know and to serve and follow. Can we just bow with me? Jesus, I am so grateful for your love and your joy and the peace and the purpose you promise us, the forgiveness and grace and the hope of heaven. Lord, forgive me for nicing you up as though the difficult statements don't apply to me or to us. Forgive me for just always giving myself the benefit of the doubt. Oh, I'm good. We're good. Instead of allowing your Holy Spirit to scour my soul and search me soul deep, that am I living and is my life reflecting that I seek first the kingdom of God and your righteousness and all the rest is added unto me. Lord, speak to us about our relationships about our priorities, about our possessions and what possesses us. Give us the courage, we pray, to loosen our grip on our lives as we live them and loosen our grip on the Jesus we like to follow and give us an even clearer understanding of who you are, that we follow you and worship you in spirit and in real truth. 
And Lord, one of the one of the litmus tests you gave us is that by this will all men know you're my disciples if you love each other. I pray that CLC goes way beyond casual acquaintance. Hi, how are you? And that we are a body of believers who really love and care for one another and do life together. So that lost people, people who are believers but feeling alone, people who are hungry will come here and walk in the doors of this place and immediately sense your presence, your love, your spirit, and your power. And that we'll be a magnet to people who don't know Jesus. The transformation will happen here. As the Holy Spirit, we invite you to be our teacher. We invite you to trouble us and guide us and show us new perspectives of this one who is the lover of our soul. Jesus, we love you. Help us to truly love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbor as ourselves. I pray your blessing of truth on each one of us today as we go from here. And we ask it all in your name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks for being here. See you Wednesday night, prayer service. Have a great week.